Well, good morning. You know, we've prayed and mentioned a few times. I, I listened to Neil's sermon. I think he mentioned it in his sermon. We've prayed about this ordinance in, in West Lafayette that was really target, targeting a biblical counseling ministry there that many of us have been to and benefited from. And, and really, they, they said they're taking aim at what's called conversion therapy. Now, much of what kind of falls under conversion therapy can just be sort of moralistic legalism. Um, you, you might remember when Wayne prayed for this, he said, we do stand against any kind of coercive or manipulative counsel or practices. But, but also in this ordinance would have um, called into question the ability of biblical counselors to call people to biblical repentance and sanctification. And so since we've mentioned this and we've prayed through this, I thought it would be helpful for us to, to know that the proposal has been withdrawn and uh, Faith Church in Lafayette and the other counseling ministries there are able to counsel according to the scriptures. And I bring that up for, for a reason, because I think we should stop and consider God's good provision, uh, uh, even God's good provision of government. It worked. The reason they pulled the ban back was they knew they had no legal standing according to the laws of our government. So, so the reason I want to say this is let's be careful not just to run to the next thing that we can be upset about before we pause and thank the Lord that His good provision of, of government, and in this case, the, the law of the land, it worked. So let's pray together. Lord, protect our hearts from running from controversy to controversy and without pausing to consider you, to consider your will, to consider your provision for us, even the provision of government. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that in this case, the law prevailed. And in other cases uh, that we've thought of in the last couple of years, um, the law has protected churches and Christians. And we are, we are grateful for that. We understand it's not a guarantee here. But Lord, continue to be gracious to us in that way. Thank you for the chance to gather and to consider your word. Lord, may you be pleased and may you speak through your word as your Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to our hearts as we seek to magnify the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can turn to Ruth chapter 3. We're walking through the book of Ruth, a chapter at a time. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Of course, the problem with that is that most of us aren't good at waiting for much of anything. You know, in the summer here in Custer, when you go to the restaurant, the first question is, how long is the wait? Or some of you get stuck at a red light and and you really should go straight. It'll probably be a little faster to go straight. But you can turn right. And you just turn right. So you, you're still moving. You know, you may not be moving in the exact right direction. But you feel better about yourself because you're not waiting there at the red light. And then others of you know the dreadful wait of ordering something on Amazon Prime and having to wait two full days before it gets delivered. We've been, we've been conditioned to loathe waiting. You know, those are some, some fun examples, but the truth is there, there are other ways that are harder to wait. Maybe it's the period of waiting between going to 
the doctor for a test and hearing the results of those tests. Maybe it's the weight of, uh, or the weight of anticipating a, a spouse or anticipating bearing children. And for, for some, maybe that, wait never, that waiting period never stopped. So this morning, I want us to think about what it is to wait on the Lord. I think Naomi seems to learn over the course of chapter 3 what, what is talked about in Psalm 27, all over the book of Isaiah, all over the Psalms, to wait on the Lord. In many ways, she serves as both a negative and a positive example of what it means to wait on Him to act. So in those first five verses there in chapter 3, we see sort of the negative example. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you have said, I will do. Now, we see there first that waiting on the Lord means pausing to seek His counsel. So in chapter, in chapter 2, we saw that the Lord providentially brought Ruth and Boaz together. You know, there was a sort of the ironic statement in the text that Ruth just so happened to stop at the field of Boaz. And we saw that behind all of this was the Lord working His providential plan and will for the good of Ruth, yes, for the good of Naomi, but ultimately we'll see next week for the good of the world as King David comes through this line and ultimately our King Jesus Christ. We saw that Boaz then sort of exemplified as one of, the, one of the ancestors of these kings, he exemplified what a good king in Israel should be like. He is a worthy man, a man of character. And so chapter 2 ended in verse 23 by saying, So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So they had met, they sort of had their first date, so to speak, but then the harvest is, is continuing, they're continuing to work, and chapter 3 opens at the end of this harvest season. The grain has been allowed to dry for a matter of days, you know, and it has time to maybe separate a little bit from the chaff. It's the perfect time to sort of beat that grain and toss it in the air so that the, the useless stuff gets blown away and the grain falls to the ground. It's called winnowing there in the text. And so it's actually probably been a few weeks since Ruth and Boaz have first met. And from everything we can gather from the text, now I'm going to try to convince you of this and, and argue this, but everything we can gather from the text, Naomi seems to be getting a little, a little antsy. She seems to be getting a little nervous that maybe what she thought might happen may not come to fruition. So she decides, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And I think we, we, we see in those first couple of verses even, Naomi's desire to take matters into her own hands. In some sense, her, her desire is honorable and it's selfless. You don't hear a lot in, in, in these verses about how this could, you know, Ruth, if you did this, it would really actually benefit me. You know, there doesn't seem to be this ulterior motive. Her hope is that Ruth would find peace 
and provision and well-being with a, with a godly husband in Boaz. But there is something that I think is missing in Naomi's thinking. You see, back in chapter 1, verse 9, when she was trying to convince her, her daughters, her daughters-in-law, that it's, it's better for you to go back to Moab and to find this rest in the house of your husband. That's what it said. She said this, May the Lord grant this to you. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of a husband. So in chapter 1, it's the Lord who provides this rest. It's the Lord who can work this out. And he will do this, I'm praying, Naomi says, as a demonstration of the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love of the Lord. And then you get to chapter 3, and she says, should I not do this? Should I not seek this for you? There seems to be a, a difference there where she's not stopping and pausing to seek the Lord and his will. It seems as if Naomi has sort of come to some conclusions that this is what's going to happen, and now it's up to me to bring this about. It's up to me to orchestrate these events. You know, it just seems like this should happen. So let's see how we can make this thing happen. She's going to seek to give the Lord a helping hand here. Maybe speed up the Lord's timeline a bit. But we should say, to wait on the Lord, though, does not mean to, to sit around and do nothing. I'm not suggesting that Naomi should sit around and do nothing. But it does, it does mean that we submit ourselves to the Lord. And we walk in wisdom and we walk according to His Word. And we don't try to get out in front of Him and figure out what His plan is and then try to scheme about how we might make that happen. And so the question is, are, are we being too hard on Naomi here? Are we reading too much into the text I think if we look at her plan in verses 3 and 4, we'll see that this is, this is not a good plan. This is not a wise and a godly plan. We, we see Naomi's scheme there in verses 3 and 4. Now, Naomi knows that, that Boaz will be at the threshing floor where he's sort of winnowing this grain and separating the, the, the grain from the chaff. You know, the threshing floor would be this rocky outcrop and usually somewhere where there's a lot of wind, maybe on top of a of a hill there, and, and, and so she knows that Boaz is going to be there, and he's going to be working, and he's likely to stay the night there at the threshing floor, so she gives instruction to her daughter-in-law, here's what you need to do, you need to wash up, you need to put on your most uh, fragrant perfume, you need to be smelling well, grab your garments, your, your ESV says cloak, it could be uh, really any kind of garment there. And go down to the threshing floor with Boaz. Essentially, you know, get dressed up and present yourself as a potential bride to Boaz. Now that's okay. Right? It's okay for her to look nice and smell nice and present herself as a potential bride to Boaz. But then the plan, the scheme gets a little weird. She says, go, find where he's at. Don't, don't eat with him. You know, don't make yourself known to him, wait till he's eaten, wait till he's had his glass of wine, then he'll fall asleep, and then you can, then you can act. And so the plan involves some ethical questions. You know, wait until he falls asleep, then you, then you uncover his feet and you sort of lie down there, 
You know, there's a lot that's been written about what is the significance of uncovering his feet here. You know, some have said, well, it's a sort of symbolism. She's going to uncover his feet, and that's sort of her way of proposing. The only problem with that is really this instance in Ruth would be the only example of that. We'd have to say, well, since it happens here, that must be some sort of symbolism. You know, sometimes the, the easiest explanation is the best explanation. I think that's probably the case here. I think that, that he's, she's supposed to uncover his feet so that he wakes up in the middle of the night. Though Naomi, though her plan is not erotic in nature. Some have tried to go sort of to the other side and say, well, she's not just uncovering his feet, she's uncovering his waist. You know, that's how it should be translated. So some have said it's sort of this erotic thing and it's sensual. I don't think that's true either. Though, though Naomi's plan doesn't seem to be erotic in nature, it does seem to be really unwise. And I think we see evidence that this is a really unwise plan in Boaz's reaction later in this chapter. And we see that I don't think it really was an erotic plan on Naomi's part because what Boaz does is he affirms that Ruth is a worthy woman. Right? He doesn't say, what are you doing here? Why are you trying to seduce me? So we would say, you know, it's probably not that. But he also says, I think down in verse 14, like, let's not tell anybody you did this. All right? Um, so it seems that, that that's where I think we land as we look at this text. You know, let's not tell everybody you spent the night out here. That's probably not where we want to go. You know, there's an element of secrecy. There's an element of hiddenness. Ruth is told, you know, don't make yourself known to him. Go under the cover of darkness. In verse 14, that's where verse 14 comes in. She, she gets up early before it's light out so that she can kind of get out of there before anybody sees. She can conceal herself, conceal herself. So Naomi's plan, it's, it's not seductive in nature per se, but it is unwise. It's not, it's not smart. And also... Naomi's, well, well, let's maybe continue down that track a little bit. It doesn't seem to care much that this could turn into a tempting and a seductive and com potentially compromising situation. Boaz is going to wake up in the middle of the night with perfume wafting his way and presumably a, a beautiful young lady there that he took notice of earlier uh, when he first saw her. In fact, in the Old Testament, this, this threshing floor is sometimes associated with immorality and illicit behavior. In Hosea chapter 9, it says Israel uh, engaged in immorality on all the threshing floors. You know, with the surrounding nations and their sort of uh, fertility cults, they would actually encourage the sort of immorality at the threshing floor. So Naomi's plan doesn't seem to really take into consideration that this could go bad. What if Boaz is not as worthy as she thinks? What if he misreads the situation and thinks that Ruth is trying to be seductive? So in some sense, she's trusting Ruth to Boaz here. And another thing she does is she seems to sort of throw caution to the wind. Ruth's security... And safety is not nearly as important as it was in chapter 2. Naomi warned Ruth in chapter 2, yeah, it's good for you not to be alone. It's, it's good for you to stay with the, the other ladies in the field. Boaz had given her the same instruction. Why don't you work with my ladies? And hey, I've told my young men, they're not allowed to touch you. 
Okay, so Boaz has made um, provision for her safety. Naomi says, I think that's a good idea. But here, it's like, just wander down there at midnight and lay down next to this man. Her safety doesn't seem to be as big of a concern. So I'm arguing that Naomi's plan doesn't seem like wisdom. She's taking matters into her own hands without first understanding and, and remembering what she did in chapter 1, that this is the Lord's work. The Lord will put these two people together if it's His good plan. She misses that God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. Neither does it need to be aided by her scheming. So sometimes, then if we're, talking about, if we're applying this to waiting upon the Lord, sometimes waiting upon the Lord means we don't act. Sometimes, not always, but that's what we've been seeing even in First and Second Kings when Israel, during Bible hour, when Israel is tempted to go down into Egypt. They're tempted to do something. We're threatened. We've got to do something. We've got to act. Let's go down to Egypt. And they're called to wait upon the Lord. Don't act. Don't seek to go down to Egypt. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt uh, for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the, this is woe to the one who does not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You see, Israel, when they were threatened on all sides, they were meant not to act, but to wait and to consult the Lord and to seek the Holy One of Israel before they did anything else. So here... Naomi seems to be falling back into the pattern of thinking that led her and her family out of the promised land in the first place. We have no food. It's on me. I've got to go make this happen. I'll leave the promised land. I will go to Moab. Here again, she acts hastily without considering the Lord, without praying to him, without trusting in him. But we see, I think, in Boaz's reaction to all of this that, that waiting upon the Lord doesn't always mean we're inactive, doesn't always mean we don't do anything. In the areas where the Lord has made His will clear, to wait upon the Lord is to act in submission to Him and trust Him with the results. We might say it this way, waiting on the Lord means obeying the word hidden in your heart. So in verse 6, Ruth does what she's been told to do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer." And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not, if, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So we don't know whether Ruth was thinking, this is brilliant. 
Naomi. Like, this is great. Let's, let's do this. We don't know what's going on in her mindset. She might just be obeying her mother-in-law, who certainly knows sort of the manners and the customs of Israel greater than she does, as she has come from Moab. But regardless, she goes down and she follows the instruction of Naomi. You know, and if you were, if, if you were sort of reading this for the first time and sort of trying to feel that tension of, man, what's going to happen? You might be wondering, man, Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is a descendant of Lot. We, we talked a little bit, just hinting at what, what happened with Lot and how the Moabites came to be in Genesis 19. Is Ruth, the Moabite, going to resort to the same sort of behavior to carry on the family line? Well, unlike Lot, who got drunk, Boaz has a merry heart, but I don't believe there's any indication of intoxication here. I don't think he's overcome by the effects of the alcohol. He has a contented heart, is the idea. He has a contented heart after a long day's work. He's had his meal. He's had his glass of wine. He's ready for bed, and so he lays down next to the grain he's been working on all day. And you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for a man like Boaz to do this. To, to work all day, maybe even into the night, maybe the winds are blowing a little harder at night and it's easier to separate the grain from the chaff. And also he would then lay down to protect his, his day's labor there from thieves or from animals coming in to steal. So Ruth, the, the SUV says slowly, it's kind of like stealthily, she sneak, sneakily, I don't know if that's a word, comes down, uncovers his feet, lays down, and now for Ruth, it's just a waiting game, right? She's not going to bed. She's waiting for Boaz to wake up. And so Ruth lays there. Maybe she's second-guessing this plan, wondering how it will all work out when Boaz wakes up. And we see there then at verse 8, Boaz wakes up at midnight. You know, again, I, I, think, I think the easiest explanation for the feet thing is like, Naomi knew the immutable law of nature that if you have two legs outside the blanket, you might catch hypothermia. You know, if it's one leg, you achieve perfect equilibrium and you can sleep all night. So he wakes up, and, and, and I think we're meant to feel the surprise in the text from Boaz. Of course, as we're reading this, we know Ruth is there. But the narrator sort of helps us understand the surprise. Behold! A woman lay at his feet. I don't know. I've, I've only ever had children show up in my bed without warning. You know, I've never, maybe you've woken up and someone's in your house that you didn't intend to be there. But, but that's sort of the idea. Behold, a woman lay at his, his feet. You know, I don't know what you're like when you suddenly wake up in the middle of the night. But I'm guessing it took Boaz a second to figure it out. You know, one time Lizzie had a nightmare and screamed in the middle of the night in her sleep. And I just hopped out of bed. I'm like, what, what, what? I didn't have a clue. Maybe that's you when you wake up, taking a minute. Okay, where am I? What day is it? Who in the world is this woman laying at my feet? And so he asks, who are you? And Ruth's answer is essentially this. It's me, Ruth. Marry me. That's what she says. Naomi had said, just wait for Boaz. He will tell you what to do. But Ruth, really, she, she sort of takes the initiative 
here. She, she essentially challenges Boaz. Not, not in a rude way, not in an unbecoming way. You know, we've seen that she's, she's called herself a servant. Um, she's grateful for all that Boaz has done. So not in a rude way or in an unbecoming way, but she essentially challenges Boaz to take up his role as the kinsman redeemer. You are the kinsman, a kinsman redeemer of the family of Elimelech. Spread your wings over your servant, she says. Now, next week, we'll, we'll finally actually slow down and really dive into this idea of kinsman redeemer and um, these re- related idea of leveret marriage. You know, we've mentioned it a few times that the leveret, leveret law stated that if a, um, you know, a husband dies before he's able to have children to carry on the family line, that the closest relative, usually a brother, would then step in and marry that woman, and the first child born of them would be the one to kind of carry on the line of the deceased man. Really, it was part of the, the promise of God that he would bless this faithful generation. Um, it became a physical testimony that I will sustain this generation even in the face of a tragedy like an early death. So Ruth is asking Boaz to take up his role as a redeemer. And, and so she uses metaphorical language, spread your wings over me. This is a marriage proposal. It is, won't you take up this task? Won't you take me as your bride? And you might be thinking, if you've been here through the whole book of Ruth, you might be thinking back to 2.12, when Boaz described Ruth's coming to Christ as coming under the wings of the Almighty. We see, um, it's interesting then, that, that even in the Old Testament, you have this covenantal type language that, that marriage is meant to be a picture of God's covenant faithfulness and steadfast love for his church, for his people. Ultimately, marriage is a picture, we know, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where a husband so selflessly loves and gives of himself that is an image and a picture of the self-giving sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and laying down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And a wife, in response to the self-sacrificial love and leadership, so respects and honors and follows this loving leadership of her husband that it reflects the church's submission to Christ. And so we see, even in the Old Testament, that there's this covenantal language that surrounds an institution that God um, has put in place, like marriage. We see it in Ruth's request. Be to me, Boaz, a a a man that pictures the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love of our Lord. And for Boaz, waking up in the middle of the night and seeing a woman there, he must have and finding out it's Ruth, he might have felt a little bit like Adam did in the garden, who fell asleep and woke up, and behold, Eve is there. And Ruth, he sees a woman who can turn his not good of being alone into the very good of a one-flesh covenant marriage. And so now we've come to a moment of truth. Boaz has woken up. Ruth has made her case. And so we, we wonder, how will Boaz respond? You know, in some ways, the hoped-for outcome from Naomi 
and probably Ruth, seems like the least likely outcome here. The hoped-for outcome seems like the least likely outcome, that Boaz would wake up in a groggy state, that he would interpret Ruth's intentions correctly, that he wouldn't be frustrated that uh, you know, she has come in the middle of the night compromising his testimony and her testimony. We have a younger person that's proposing to an older person. We have a, a woman that's proposing to a man, a Moabite proposing to an Israelite. This just seems like an unlikely thing to happen. And so when Boaz speaks, we get the sense almost of relief. Even though he's just been kind of startled out of his sleep to find Ruth there, we see that he acts consistent with his worthy character that he's been described as having previously in the book. Um, He doesn't seek to take advantage of the situation. He doesn't berate Ruth for her poorly planned proposal. It's a tongue twister. He speaks gently with Ruth. He blesses her. He, he reminds her that her testimony in the city is that she is indeed a worthy woman. He speaks gently, calling her his, his daughter, which indicates that he's likely older than she is, you know, but within reasonable marrying age. He's still out working his field. He's still able to bear children. He praises her for not going after others. Young men, old or poor, or poor or rich, you know, in that culture, you were either poor or rich, so thank you for not going after others, anybody, any man, thank you for coming here. Again, honors her as a worthy woman, but most importantly, he does agree to to redeem her, to marry her. There's just one hang-up, and it's there in verse 12. Um, You know, the ESV starts with, and, you know, you could translate that although or but. Although I am a redeemer and I want to do this, there is a redeemer nearer than I. There is someone who is a closer relative to Elimelech that should take up his responsibility to redeem you and to care for you and to provide an heir for the clan of Elimelech, he should take responsibility of this family. I am a kinsman redeemer, he says, but I am actually not the kinsman redeemer. So notice then, Boaz is, I'm I'm arguing, waiting on the Lord. He is excited that she has not gone after other men. He says, this is a great kindness to me. This kindness you have shown is greater than the kindness you showed even to Naomi. He is, he's excited about the prospect of Ruth. But notice, he doesn't engage in sort of scheming here. He knows what is required of him. He knows what he needs to do for this to be honorable and for this to be right, even, even if it costs him the desire of his heart, even if it costs him what he really wants. This is not how your romance movies work. <laughs> You know, it's, it's usually at all costs. No, it's, it's if, if the Lord works this out according to his provision. Here's one way we'll know. I'll go down tomorrow, and I'll see if this guy wants to be a kinsman redeemer. He's submitting himself to the law of the Lord. He is waiting on the Lord. He's certainly hoping for a certain outcome, but he's submitted his desires to the revealed will of God. And so we see them, that waiting on the Lord does not always entail not working. 
he does have certain things that he needs to do in the morning to be faithful to the Lord. He's got to go. I don't know what's going on here. If I need to use this, I can. Um, so we should then regularly be asking ourselves, what is it, what does God require of me at this moment? Is it to act? Is it to wait? Is it to, to, to walk in wisdom? What is it that God requires of me in this moment? That is God's will. In fact, we, we, we talked about Naomi sort of trying to bring about what she thought. Well, maybe God's doing this. Let me, let me give him a helping hand here. And she's actually, she's actually right that, that Ruth and Boaz will end up together, but he doesn't need her scheming. He doesn't need Ruth to walk into a potentially dangerous and tempting situation to fulfill his plan. So as you consider God's plan for you, again, I, I'm thinking in terms of like Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. His, his will, the things that we cannot know, his, or we might say his plan, that we cannot look into the future and know his plan, but that which is revealed belongs to you and to your children, that, that, that you may walk in the law of the Lord. So, so we have what's revealed, but we don't have the, the mysterious providential future that God has for each of us. So I think it's, it's important for us to then submit our sort of interpretation of what God is up to and what he's bringing about, submit that to the revealed will of God in Scripture. What I'm, what I'm getting at is that God will never lead you sort of providentially as you read the tea leaves and try to interpret your circumstances. He will never lead you contrary to his scripture. He will not lead you into sin. He will not lead you into temptation. So it isn't God's will for you. Then you say, oh, well, wow, I met this, you know, I met this guy and he's, he's amazing. There's only one problem. He doesn't know the Lord. Well, God is not leading you to marry somebody who, who you cannot be equally yoked with, to use Paul's language. Or, wow, me and my coworker really hit it off. This just must be God's will. God will never lead you into adultery or unfaithfulness. He's never leading you into sin, despite what all your circumstances may be. Uh, you know, really, it's just, if we're honest, there's something our heart wants. And we can make ourselves believe that by saying, oh, look, this fell perfectly in line. It must be God's will. We can even explain our sin away by trying to pin it on God's, God's plan. So as you consider God's plan, know that he's, he's not leading you into sin ever, even if it just feels right. Thomas Watson said, Providence is the Christian's diary, not the Christian's Bible. What he means by that is we don't try to discern our circumstances and then stamp it with the same authority that we stamp God's revealed will, the Bible, with. Oh, God must be telling me to do this through my circumstances. Well, we can really go awry there. God has told us what to do clearly in his word. He has revealed his will perfectly to us. We read about it in Psalm 19. And it's our responsibility then to obey the word of the Lord to seek wise counsel from those people who are around us, those who love God and those who love us, and to walk and act in obedience and wisdom, even as we wait for the Lord to act, even when we don't know how everything will 
turn out. So waiting on the Lord means that even when we have to act, we act in a spirit of dependency upon God and on his word. You know, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We understand a, a, a dependency on God as we go about our daily business and we, we take care of our families and we, we seek to obey the Lord. We understand that ultimately this, we are completely and utterly dependent upon him. So to say that, you know, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain, it doesn't mean the watchman should just go to sleep. You know, there's no sense in Scripture in which, oh, God is sovereign over everything. I should just watch Netflix all day. The other thing that I think is noteworthy about Boaz's response is that he responds with uh, such integrity despite the suddenness of being woken up, despite the oddness of the moment. You know, it's... He, he, he could not have anticipated this moment and practiced or rehearsed how he should respond if he wakes up in the middle of the night on the threshing floor and a woman that he's, he wants to marry is just waiting there laying at his feet. You know, there's some things we, we can rehearse and we should, you know, and sharing the gospel. Maybe you can anticipate some questions that might come your way and how you can get to the gospel. But there are times in life when we don't have time to stop. So we've got to hide God's word in our heart so that in the moment we're responding with integrity and character and Christ-likeness. You know, the sort of response, the sort of obedience that Boaz demonstrates here is not some kind of legalism. It, it, as far as we can tell... From the text, he's a, he's a truly God-fearing, worthy man. And so his, his respect, his provision, his, his love, his care, his obedience to the Lord, his waiting on the Lord is the fruit of his love for the Lord. And so Boaz wants to obey God. Seems as if he's hidden God's word deep in his heart and therefore is able to respond in godliness when confronted unexpectedly with a potentially hard circumstance, tempting circumstance. Well, before Ruth goes back, he tells her to rest until the morning. You know, I really doubt that either of them slept much the rest of that night. It's Boaz probably like, oh, well, how's this going to work out in the morning? Ruth is probably wondering the same thing. How will the next day go? Ruth gets up before the sun comes up so that no one will recognize her. Boaz says, I, I think probably to himself, because he, he, he calls Ruth the woman. I don't think he's probably addressing Ruth there. Um, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. I doubt he said that directly to Ruth. Um, or they wouldn't have got married. No, I'm just kidding. He seeks, though, I think in this to protect her to protect her integrity, to protect both of their testimonies. I don't, I don't think she sinned here, but Boaz doesn't want anybody to sort of fill in the blanks and make assumptions about this situation. And once again, we see Boaz with his provision before sending her off. He, he sends her with more barley, specifically for Naomi. We see that the Lord is, again, filling up Naomi's arms. He's not dealing bitterly with her the way she interpreted her circumstances previously. He's demonstrating his steadfast love and his kindness to Naomi over and over and over again. And it's in this act of kindness, it, it seems, that Naomi is ready then to wait, 
to trust the Lord with the outcome. So waiting on the Lord means, means seeking his counsel, praying, uh, studying his word. Waiting means obeying in a state of dependency upon the Lord. And we see lastly then, we'll hurry here, that waiting means trusting him with the future. Look in verses, well let me read 14 through the end of the chapter there. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it be known that the woman came, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring me the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. As Ruth comes home with a, a garment full of barley, we don't really know the, the, the measurement. Well, it says six measures. We don't really know what that measurement was. It could just be six scoops there. But as she walks in with, with all this grain, you know, and per, perhaps Ruth and Boaz weren't the only ones that stayed up all night wondering how things will go. Perhaps Naomi was up. She, she greets Ruth early in the morning. How did it go? And Ruth fills her in with all the details. She makes special note that Boaz said, I am not to come home and leave you empty-handed. Again, we've seen two ways in the book of Ruth so far that Naomi has been emptied. The, the book opened with Naomi not having food, no bread, and then the tragedy befell the family, and she has no lineage now. She's left with no children or lineage to pass on. The Lord has met her first need twice now. He has filled her up twice with food, and we'll wait till the conclusion of the book to see how he meets the second way she's been emptied. But Naomi seems to get the message that she can trust this good God who has, been, who has been faithful to her, who has demonstrated his steadfast love over and over and over again to her. He has repeatedly been kind to her. You see here, she, she doesn't scheme. She doesn't concoct a plan to make, you know, maybe we can make the closer kinsman redeemer sort of disappear before this meeting, you know. Nobody will ever hear from him again. You know, it sounds funny, but David would do something like that, wouldn't he, with Uriah? And notice the first word then in verse 18, wait, wait. She, she's ready to wait and to sit back and see what the Lord has in store. The kindness of the Lord has proven that he can be trusted, that she doesn't have to scheme take matters into her own hands. You know, I would encourage those who are in a particularly difficult season right now, as we think about the Lord just continually demonstrating his kindness to Naomi, who, like all of us, doesn't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Ruth and Boaz don't deserve it. But as he continues to demonstrate his kindness to her, you know, those of you who are in particularly difficult seasons right now, maybe the future is uncertain Maybe the only options you see in front of you are scary options. You aren't exactly what 
you aren't exactly sure what the Lord is up to in your life, I would encourage you to, to consider the character of God as seen in the book of Ruth. Study his attributes. Study his nature. Study his character. You know, you can talk to one of the elders about, you know, what would be a good book for me? I'm a good reader. I'm a strong reader. I, I, I hate to read. You know, maybe we can find a good resource for you um, if you would like to study the attributes of God. You see, Naomi sees the kindness of God and the provision of God, and she's now ready to wait. You know, I love the, the final words of the book of uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. Until the day when God shall deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is summed up in these two words, wait and hope. Wait on the Lord. Hope in the Lord. He has planned the end from the beginning. He is constantly, the Bible tells us, working for the good of those who love him. We can wait on the Lord then. We've seen by seeking him in prayer, seeking his counsel according to his word. We can we can wait on the Lord by acting in dependence upon him. And we can act by trusting him with an uncertain future. You know, this, this resting, this waiting, this, this hoping, this, this trusting is hard for us, isn't it? Because we're sort of brought up to, to believe if it's going to be, it's on me. If it's going to be, it's up to me. We are sort of the generation that pulls ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We work hard to achieve that which we dream about. We, we desperately want to be self-sufficient. Tax season's coming. I'm already seeing people make fun of those who don't pay enough taxes. They don't work hard enough. And I'm not saying that's funny or right. It's, it's not. I'm just saying um, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to take care of ourselves. But the gospel demands that we admit our inability to work the most important works. In John chapter 6, the crowd comes to Jesus and says, What must we do to be working the works of God? You know what Jesus said? This is the work of God. To believe. To believe. The gospel reminds us that we are totally incapable of working that which is most important. We are incapable of earning our own forgiveness. We are incapable of earning our own righteousness. But only in the Lord Jesus Christ as he has come to this earth and perfectly fulfilled the law of the Lord. Walking in perfect obedience. Taking the wrath of the Father on the cross. Bearing the full penalty and weight of our son victoriously resurrecting from the grave and offering salvation, purchasing salvation to save sinners who could never save themselves. We can't do anything to bring about the work of God. We can't do anything to bring about the salvation of God. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has acted for us in his death and resurrection to accomplish what we could never accomplish. We can't scheme our way to it. We can't, we can't outthink it and, and get there on our own uh, wisdom and knowledge. We can't reconcile ourselves to a holy God. We cannot save ourselves. And so the call of the gospel is to humble yourself and come to Christ as a needy sinner, admitting that there's no other way for you to be reconciled with a holy and righteous God outside of the finished work of Jesus. We just sang about it earlier. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Don't wait. 
If you don't know Christ this morning, don't, don't, don't wait until you can kind of clean yourself up a little bit, and then I'll come to the Lord. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. I'm reminded of another song we sing, A Mighty Fortress. Martin Luther wrote this. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus it is he. Lord of hosts is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Ultimately, we can wait upon the Lord, not because Boaz did, not because Ruth did, not because Naomi learned how to. We can wait upon the Lord in a spirit of dependence because Jesus himself has taken up the battle on our behalf. He has won the war. Through Christ, God has delivered us, according to Paul, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for working on our behalf. Now, Lord, may we remember who you are and not forget your character and your nature. And Lord, may you be pleased with us as we learn to wait in dependence upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.